Amen. Thank you for that song. Well, this time uh, we're going to go ahead and let all of our children uh, be dismissed. Those who are three years old to uh, seven years old are going to be dismissed and they can uh, go toward the back of the auditorium and they'll go over to uh, our Aetha building, which is right across the parking lot for their services. And then afterwards, uh, parents can pick them up. And if you need help uh, getting there, we'll be happy to direct you uh, to them. Luke chapter number two uh, is where we're going to be this morning. Hard to believe we're in December already. I was like, man, we're on the last page of the calendar. What are we going to do? And uh, came here fast. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not quite ready for it. Uh, but I do enjoy uh, Christmas time and uh, Christmas decorations and the lights and the food and the uh, festivities and all that's involved in that. And uh, we're going to look here this morning at the Christmas story. And so if you found your place in Luke chapter 2, if you would, stand with me. Uh, I'm going to read a few verses here, and then I'll allow you to be seated. Beginning in verse number 1, the Bible says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her first son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known to us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying, which was told them concerning this child. Thank you. You may be seated. As I mentioned earlier, uh, we enjoy uh, Christmas time and all the different things that go along with that. And one of the things that, I don't know about you, maybe your family enjoys doing this, but uh, we enjoy watching some Christmas movies. Uh, There's something about Christmas movies that uh, just kind of bring back uh, the holiday feelings and, and the spirit and kind of get you in the mood for Christmas and uh, give you all those warm and fuzzy feelings that you didn't think I had. Um, but uh, we enjoy doing that. But have you ever noticed that when you watch, the central, watch these different movies and even read a lot of the Christmas stories, the central plot really is the same for almost all of them. I can pretty much tell you what the story is going to be about, and I don't want to ruin it quite for you. Uh, but most of the Christmas stories involve the main character searching for the meaning of Christmas or discovering the meaning of Christmas. I think about the classic story by Dr. Seuss, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. 
The Grinch, he attempts to ruin Christmas for the Who's down in Whoville uh, by stealing their decorations, taking their gifts, thinking that that's all that Christmas is about. It's about the gifts and the ribbons and the boxes and the packages and bags and all that stuff. But in the end, he discovers that, you know, maybe the true meaning of Christmas, maybe it's a little bit more than that. And he discovers that it's not about the material possessions. Uh, the other night, my, my family and I, we were watching a Charlie Brown Christmas. And Charlie Brown, he's disheartened by the commercialism of Christmas. It's even taken the attention of his dog. Uh, it got wrapped up into one of those decorating contests. And Charlie Brown, he laments. He says, I think there must be something wrong with me. He says, Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way that I'm supposed to feel. And Charlie Brown, he takes on the task of directing the school Christmas play in an attempt to try to discover what the true meaning of Christmas was. And thanks to his buddy, uh, Linus, he figures out what the answer is. But, you know, I thought even today, there are many who are searching for the meaning of Christmas. Many believe that Chris, the meaning of Christmas is found in, in time spent with loved ones. Perhaps they believe it's maybe found in the beauty of the season. Some look to the gifts for meaning, the meaning of Christmas and, and the giving of gifts. But you know, the true meaning of Christmas, as believers, we know it's found in something much greater than time spent with family. It's found in something much greater than seasonal changes or even giving of gifts. The real significance of Christmas is not discovered under a tree, but rather in the one who hung on a tree for us. And while searching for the meaning of Christmas is a common element in the stories of Christmas that we see today, as I was thinking about the Christmas story, uh, I found that we find many uh, people within the Christmas story in the biblical account searching as well. And this morning I want to look at five important searches that we find here in this Christmas story and what they mean for you and I. And so this morning, if you want to take notes, I wrote down just five points. They're not going to be long, I promise. Um, but I want to look here at five different searches. I want to try to draw out some application from each. But I wrote down, first of all, we see here the search of Mary and Joseph. Look in verse number one. It tells us in Luke chapter two, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. The Bible tells us here that there was a proclamation that was given to all of the world, uh, the known world at that time, to be taxed. And it required each person to return to their birthplace for a, a census and then for a tax uh, to be taken. And God providentially used this taxation, used this decree to fulfill a prophecy that was given seven centuries earlier by the prophet Micah. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. God used this decree by a worldly ruler to get Mary and Joseph exactly where he needed them to be. Now, this wasn't an easy journey. The Bible tells us that when this was given, that Joseph, he was there. Uh, he went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth. This would have been quite a journey. It would have been approximately 90 miles that they would have had to travel. And they didn't have airplanes and trains and luxury vehicles. No, they traveled by animal. And so you can imagine uh, the difficulty for Mary, who is pregnant, traveling by animal these 90 miles. And then Luke he adds in this uh, small account, he says that they went up 
from Galilee. And it's not just talking about the direction north that they headed, but it's speaking to the altitude in which they ascended on their way to Bethlehem. They would have gone up in altitude approximately 2,500 feet as they traveled these 90 miles. And so it was a difficult journey. It was a challenging journey that they faced. Imagine the difficulty of Mary, but also think about the type of stress that Joseph was under. All those who have been new dads before. Uh, who don't know what to expect when you're expecting, right? Uh, there's a lot of challenges uh, that are involved in being a first-time parent. He had never done that before, and so he's wanting to make sure that his wife is comfortable. He's wanting to make sure that she's safe as they travel up to Bethlehem, and then they arrive in Bethlehem, and they find all of the rooms are taken. There's nowhere for them to go, and, and what is Joseph to do? Joseph has a wife who's ready to pop, no place uh, for his child uh, to be born. And I can imagine maybe some panic beginning to set in. I can imagine some urgency in his voice as he goes from end to end to see if they have any room. I can imagine him trying to explain the severity of their situation. Listen, you don't understand. My wife, she's about to give birth. We need a place for this child. And, and he's going from place to place. And I can imagine maybe there was some desperation as he's searching for a place for them to stay in, you look at their circumstances and you look at this tax coming at a very inconvenient time in their life and requiring them to, to go to great lengths to get to where they need to be and then uh, finding out there's really nowhere for them when they get there. And on the surface, it looks like a mess. It looks like a disastrous uh, situation. If you were to, to lay out how the king of the universe was going to be born, this is no fairy tale story that's taking place here. And, and, and we can look at this and we say, man, this doesn't make any sense. Why would all this have to happen? But in reality, we understand that God was using all of these things to orchestrate events, to accomplish his divine plan for the redemption of mankind. Hey, the census, it was no accident. Bethlehem, it wasn't a mistake. The manger, it wasn't God's backup plan. Mary and Joseph, their search, it reminds us of the fact that we have an all-powerful, sovereign God who's in control of every aspect in our life. There are no accidents with God. God is actively at work in the affairs of men, orchestrating and accomplishing His will. And so when the events in your life seem out of control... When you receive news that you didn't expect, when circumstances change unexpectedly, when it seems as though you're encountering obstacle after obstacle, don't get discouraged. Don't lose heart. Don't think that God has somehow abandoned you. Instead, remember that we serve a sovereign, all-powerful God who's actively at work in our lives. Now, His ways are not our ways. His, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His means and His methods of working in our life are not always what we would have envisioned, but we can trust that He's working and that He's orchestrating all things together for our good and for His glory. And so we see the search here of Mary and Joseph. But notice, secondly, we also see the search of the shepherds. The search of the shepherds. Look at verse uh, number 8. It says this, it says, and they were in the same country, shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Can you imagine what it would have been like or must have been like to have been one of those shepherds that night? There you are out in the field and minding your own business, and bam, the, sun, the, the sky lights up. 
Right? There's an angel. The angel of the Lord, uh, he appears out of nowhere declaring the birth of Christ. I can imagine this was probably a pretty frightening sight. It makes a lot of sense that the angel says, fear not. Right? This is his first, uh, first introduction to the message. And if that weren't enough, after he gets done, suddenly now there's a whole host of heaven that's praising God. And uh, that must have been quite the sight to see. But have you ever stopped to think of all the people that the angel could have come and proclaimed the, the announcement of Christ's birth. Why shepherds? Why did he choose the shepherds? They weren't educated. They weren't wealthy. They didn't have any significant influence. They were some of the lowest members of society. Why not go to the major news outlets? Well, I maybe know why on that one, but why not the high priests? Why not the wealthy? Why not someone of status? I mean, of all the people that God could have chosen to send his messengers, he chose the shepherds to declare the greatest news to. You know, the Bible tells us here that these shepherds were in the same country, it says, that Jesus was born. And this maybe gives us some clues as to their significance. Now, there are some historical documents that seem to indicate that perhaps uh, these shepherds were maybe watching over sheep that were to be used in temple sacrifices and that uh, perhaps these sheep were specifically chosen to be used in future Passover sacrifices. We don't know for certain that that were the case, but if it were, that means that these shepherds were receiving a message from the angels, an invitation to come and see the ultimate Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. And, and that was, in fact, what they did see. And, and one day he would also be the great shepherd. And so uh, perhaps that was one of the significances in telling these shepherds. But the, signi the significance there, I believe, of the angel appearing to the shepherds was to signify the fact that the good news of Christ's birth it wasn't just for a select and privileged few. It was for everyone. It was for the lowly. It was for the outcasts. It was for the uneducated. It was for everyone. In fact, uh, the angel says, it was a message which shall be to all people. He was to be the Savior of the world. Jesus didn't just come for those who were worthy. He didn't come for those who deserve Him. He didn't come for those who are qualified to receive His grace and His mercy. He didn't come for a select few. He came to be the Savior of the entire world. And that includes you and me. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, Jesus will save anyone who comes humbly in faith to Him. And so whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus is wanting to be your Savior. Hey, don't let the devil trick you into thinking that you have to qualify to become a candidate of salvation. You don't have to get your life in order before you get saved. No, it's backwards. You get saved and then Jesus will get your life in order. Jesus invites you to come as you are. You say, well, I've got problems. You say, there's nothing special about me. You say there's nothing desirable about me. I'm just an ordinary person. Well, good news. So were the shepherds. Ordinary people. And God used those ordinary shepherds as the first to declare the good news of Christ's arrival. And so we see the search of Mary and Joseph. We see the search of the shepherds. Notice thirdly here, we see the search of the wise men. Go ahead and turn over to Matthew chapter number 2. Matthew chapter 2, we find 
uh, Matthew's account of the birth of Christ. And he tells us, beginning in verse uh, number 1, it says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Look down at verse number 9. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Here we find this account of the wise men that come and visit Christ uh, after his birth. And the wise men in the Christmas story are really quite a mystery. We're not totally sure uh, who exactly they were. We don't know specifically uh, where they came from, how they knew that this star uh, indicated the birth of the Messiah. But the Bible does tell us some things about them. Tells us that they came from the east, and that could be an indication that they came from somewhere in the Orient. Uh, some have speculated that perhaps these wise men, uh, they, had, they, they perhaps were of Babylonian or even Persian descent. Uh, well, we, uh, we know that they were well-versed in astronomy and astrology and even in history. Uh, you notice their question to Herod. He says, uh, where is he that is born king of the Jews? The fact that he asks about the king of the Jews, it indicates that he had some knowledge of the Messiah from some source. I mean, they wouldn't have come up with this uh, on their own. There's no way they could have figured that out uh, by themselves. And so what was their source? Well, it's possible that uh, if these wise men did indeed come from Babylonia, that maybe they had access to the prophecies that Daniel wrote about the Messiah while he was there in captivity. Maybe they seem to have been influenced in some way by Judaism and have had knowledge of the significance of this star. And so, again, there's a lot of speculation about who they were and where they came from. Uh, but here's what we can say with certainty about these wise men. We know that there were at least two, because it says wise men, it's a plural. And so uh, we know that there were at least two. Now, uh, I know a lot of you have nativity scenes at home, and there's three of them. And I'm not trying to bust your bubble this morning. Uh, there may have only been two. There could have been 2,000 or somewhere in between. We're not quite sure. Um, but we know that there were at least uh, two. Uh, we know that they were directed uh, by a star that came. We know that they were men. You know, when Matthew was inspired by the Holy Spirit, there was no confusion about what a man was and what a woman was. He knew. We, knew that, we know that they came. We know that they acknowledged. And we know that they worshipped. But here's the thing about the wise men and their search and the significance of it is that the significance of the wise men, it's not found in who they were, but rather in what they did. See, these wise men, they saw the star and they traveled great distances to meet the king of the Jews. And the Bible says that in verse number 11, when they finally came to the place where Jesus was, it says they fell down and worshipped him. That phrase fell down, it means to throw oneself to the ground as a sign of devotion before a high-ranking person or a divine being. Falling down to the ground is what you do in order to acknowledge you're high and I'm low. Not only does it say that they fell down, but it says that they worshipped Him. And that worship, it's a word that we're familiar with. We just had 
a time of worship. And it comes from a Greek word, proskuno, which is a combination of two Greek words. Pros, meaning, to, uh, be, meaning before, and kuno, meaning to kiss or to adore. And it literally means to prostrate oneself, to fall upon the knees uh, as an expression of profound reverence, to do homage, to make obeisance. That's why we say often that the most biblical form of worship is bowing. And so we know that from the gifts that these men brought and the fact that they received an audience uh, with a king, that these wise men, they were respected people. They were most likely wealthy people. They were men of status. And yet here in the presence of Jesus, they demonstrate great humility as they fall down before him and worship him. That's what every true wise man and woman does today. Our ultimate purpose in life should be to serve and to worship him. It's interesting that when the wise men come to Herod and they come looking for the king of the Jews, Herod, he had to consult with the priests and the scribes in order to find out where the Messiah was born. And we're going to look at it here in just a second. But they don't have to go back and check the records to see what it says. They, they quote it to him from memory. They know where the Messiah was to be born. They say, hey, uh, he's supposed to be in Bethlehem. And so how Herod's palace, which is most likely where this meeting occurred, it was only about three miles away from where the Messiah would have been born there in Bethlehem. And yet none of the priests or the scribes who knew where the Messiah was to be born were even inclined to go and visit him. You see, the chief priests and the scribes, they gave the right information, but they had the wrong response. I mean, what good is it if you know the Bible, but it doesn't affect you in any way? They understood the prophecy, but it didn't make any difference to their life. And it's amazing to me that these Gentile wise men adored and worshipped the king of the Jews while the priests and the scribes ignored him and the so-called king of the Jews sought to have him killed. See, these wise men, they knew more about the Messiah than God's own people did. They believed in Christ when they had never seen him. They believed in him when the scribes and the Pharisees were unbelieving. They believed in him when they, saw, uh, when they saw him as a young child and they worshiped him as king. They didn't need miracles to convince them. They didn't need to hear any teaching in order to persuade them. They didn't need signs of divinity and greatness to uh, captivate them and, and, and have them in awe. They saw nothing but a child who was helpless and needing in mother's care, just like ourselves. And yet when they saw, them, saw him, they believed in him and they worshipped him as the savior of the world. In conjunction with their worship, we see that they present gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All of these are full of Old Testament symbolism. Gold, it's the symbol of royalty or kingship, emphasizing the fact that Jesus was king. Frankincense is the symbol of deity. It was part of that which was burned at the altar of incense within the holy place, emphasizing the fact that Jesus is God. Myrrh was associated in the Old Testament with death and embalming, foreshadowing Christ's death on the cross. And, and so their gifts, uh, they, they not only signify who Christ was, but they also imply that they gave their best. See, the, the Bible calls them their treasures. These were valuable gifts. They weren't cheap. They were costly. And these wise men were demonstrating that this king of the Jews was their greatest treasure. That their gifts, uh, there were gifts that were fit for a king. And so the search of the wise men reminds us not only that Jesus, he's worthy of our worship, but he's also worthy of our best. 
See, we worship Him best when we unreservedly offer to Him our very best. You know, you think about as you're making your Christmas list this year and thinking about what it is you'll get for those uh, in your family and those that you're planning to shop for, have you stopped to consider what it is you're going to give to the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, if you've never trusted Him as Savior, the thing that He desires most from you is faith in Him. He wants you to respond to His offer of salvation and the gift of eternal life. Hey, if you're saved, what He wants from you is you. Romans 12.1 I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Hey, He wants to use you for His purposes. And listen, after all He's done for us, the Bible says it's only reasonable that we give our lives to Him. And so when we give ourselves, we give the one Christmas gift that truly fits the occasion. And so we see the search of Mary and Joseph, the search of the shepherds, the search of the wise men. Notice fourthly here, we see the search of Herod. In Matthew chapter 2, look at verse uh, number 3. It says, When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship also. Look down in verse number 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that, are, that were in Bethlehem and all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. So here we see that as these wise men come searching for the king of the Jews, they're led to Herod's palace. And Herod, he was a very clever and ruthless ruler that was constantly on the watch for insurrection. His history refers to Herod as Herod the Great. Although in reality there wasn't much that was great about him. But Herod, he was wealthy. He was politically gifted. He was intensely loyal. He was an excellent administrator. He was clever enough to remain in the favor of Roman governor after Roman, uh, sorry, Roman emperor after Roman emperor. His building projects, including the Jewish temple, were admired even by his enemies. But here's the thing about Herod. He loved power. He loved power. He inflicted incredibly heavy taxes upon the people and resented the fact that many Jews considered him illegitimate. They didn't recognize Herod as king of the Jews. They were looking for a different king. And so Herod was always paranoid that someone was out to take his power. He became so evil that he killed three, maybe even four, of his own sons and his favorite wife, Miriam. He had ten wives uh, and offspring who were constantly conspiring against one another. Augustus, the Roman emperor, he said of Herod, he said it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. That's how evil Herod was. And so it's no surprise then that Herod reacts the way that he does when the wise men come and say, hey, we're looking for the king of the Jews. Herod's thinking, in the flesh, here I am. Only to realize they were looking for someone else. And so he wasn't okay with the idea of being replaced. 
Herod, he inquires of the priests and the scribes where this Messiah would be born. Not because he was interested in worshiping him, but because he was interested in eliminating him. That's why Herod asked in verse 7 what time the star appeared. He wanted to know what age child do I need to look to eliminate? Who, am I, who is my greatest threat? Herod thinks that he can use the wise men to lead him to the one who threatened to take his throne by telling them, hey, come back when you're done. I want to go and I want to worship him as well. But the wise men, they didn't fall for Herod's deceit. Instead, God warned them in a dream not to return and they went out another way. The Bible says that Herod was enraged when he found out he was mocked by those, these wise men and he ordered all infants to be massacred in a futile attempt to try to stop God's plan. You see, Herod's search for the Messiah, it reminds us that nothing can thwart God's plan. Not even Satan. Satan is a defeated foe. He's a loser from the beginning and he'll be defeated once and for all when Christ returns. It reminds us that there's no king that can stop God's plan from advancing. And so we should take courage that God will prevail. When the world that we live in looks dark, when the outcome looks bleak, we can remember that God is in control. It may have appeared to those living in Herod's day that evil would prevail. They had a wicked ruler. They were living under a foreign power. Now there would be a mass execution of their children. But God was working to bring about his plan of redemption. You know, if tomorrow Christianity were outlawed, the government were overthrown, America was invaded, and the economy crashed, we'd have no reason to fear. Because God is in control. He'll still take care of His children. His church will still prevail. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we can trust that nothing can thwart God's plan. And so we see the search of Mary, the search of Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men and Herod. But I want to look lastly here at the greatest search of the Christmas story, and that's the search of Jesus. The Bible tells us in Luke 19 and verse 10, it says, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. See, in this one short sentence, we're told that Christ came into this world for a purpose. He came to do a work. He didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. In the Christmas story, it tells us and reminds us of the fact that Jesus, he left heaven. He humbled himself. He became a man. He lived a perfectly sinless life and he died for a purpose. And that was to redeem mankind. See, God is holy. God is perfect. He cannot allow sin into His presence. See, God, He's holy, but we're sinful. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Each one of us, we've sinned, we've lied, we've cheated, we've disobeyed our parents, we've stolen. Listen, no one had to teach us how to do any of those things. Each one of us, uh, we sinned because we were born sinners. Romans 5 and verse 12 tells us, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Listen, we're not sinners just because we sin any more than we're cars because we sit in a garage. We sin because we're sinners. That's who we are. The moment that Adam and Eve sinned, all of mankind fell. Their sin, it says, was passed down from generation to generation. That means you were born a sinner. You didn't even have to sin to be a sinner. And that creates a problem for us. Because if God is holy and we're sinful, that means that in our default state, we can't enter into His presence. 
God, as a just God, cannot allow sin to go unpunished. It must be dealt with. And Romans 6 and verse 23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death. The penalty for your sin as it, for your sin is death. A result of sin is that we're all going to die. Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed unto man once to die. But not only that, it extends beyond the physical death. The Bible, uh, the, in, the, in the Bible, the word death, it speaks of separation. Separation between God and man. The Bible talks about there being a second death. Revelation 21 and verse 8, but the fearful and, un- and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You see, the penalty for our sin, it's a separation from God for all of eternity in hell. That means that each one of us in our default state will die and spend an eternity separated from God in hell. You say, well, what if I live a good life? What if I do a lot of good deeds? Maybe when I get to heaven, uh, I'll get there and my, my, my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds and God will let me into heaven. Well, not so fast. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. See, the Bible says it's not by works of righteousness that we can enter into heaven. Listen, you couldn't save yourself. There's nothing you can do to erase your sin debt. You can't work it off. You don't get credit for good behavior or time served. Religion won't help you. Baptism won't wash away your sins. My point is this. There's no possible way for you to get to God on your own. So He came to you. That's what Christmas is all about. Philippians 2, verse 7 and 8, But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. See, God is the creator of the universe. He loves you so much that he took on flesh. He became man. He took our sins upon himself, and he died on the cross as a perfect lamb of God to be the sacrifice for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he, God, hath made him Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There on the cross of Calvary, God demonstrated his great love for you and for me by sending his only begotten son to die in our place for our sin. John 3.16 again, For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 5 and verse 8, But God commendeth, He demonstrated, He proved His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He endured the shame. He endured the mocking. He endured the scourging and the suffering. Why? Because He loved you, and He longed to have a relationship with you. He made a way for you to have all of your sins forgiven. He made a way for you to have eternal life. And all we must simply do is place our faith, trust, and dependence in His finished work. Romans 10 and verse 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. See, people today, they're searching for the meaning of Christmas. They're searching to understand its significance. But it's not about Mary and Joseph. It's not about the shepherds. It's not about the wise men 
or even Herod. It has nothing to do with trees and decorations and gifts. Christmas is about Jesus. It's about the Son of God becoming flesh to redeem us from our sins. And if you're not saved this morning, the greatest gift you could ever receive this Christmas season is the gift of eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. It won't be found under a tree. It'll be found in the one who hung on a tree for you. And so the Christmas story should encourage us that the all-sovereign, powerful God of the universe is in control of every aspect of our life. There are no accidents with Him. He's actively at work in the affairs of men, orchestrating and accomplishing His will. It reminds us that Jesus, He invites us to come just as we are. He didn't come for just a few. He came for all people. And He wants us to share that good news of His coming with all people. It reminds us that Jesus, He's worthy of our worship, that He's worthy of our best. We worship Him best when we unreservedly offer Him our best and what Jesus is wanting is you. It reminds us that nothing can thwart God's plan, not even Satan. It reminds us that Satan is a defeated foe. No king, no power can ever ever stop God's plan from advancing and we should take courage that God will prevail. But most of all, Christmas, it reminds reminds us that God loves you so much that he went through great lengths to provide a way of redemption for you. On that first Christmas, God gave his only begotten son for you. And if you're here this morning and you don't know that all of your sins are forgiven, you don't know that if you were to die today, that you're 100% certain you'd be in heaven with your next breath, we'd love to show you from the Bible how you can know that for sure. We'd love to show you how you can receive the greatest gift that you'll ever receive, the gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life. Let's all stand together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Pianist is going to come and play a hymn of invitation here in just a moment. We want to invite you, if the Lord spoke to you this morning, to come and to do business with Him. Respond to Him. If you're here this morning and you need to be saved, you don't know that your sins are forgiven, you don't know that you have eternal life, let us take a Bible and show you how you can know that for sure so you can leave here with certainty that your sins are forgiven and that you have eternal life. As pianist plays, if the Lord spoke to you, you come this morning.